have you here. <laughs> you would hope at some point, and again, I don't know when, uh, at some point, uh, things might change. <laughs> and so you started that right off the bat and that end, and that, is that where you looked at kind of where your career was going from there? What, what happened then? Like, you wanted to be do this. When do you say this is going to be something I want to do? I think in college, I was in um, uh, study abroad and I was in, in Italy and I, I didn't have much TV. There wasn't much English stuff. We're back to the Neil Haley Show here on the Total Celebrity segment. And now the media giant effect. It'll be really coming uh, soon. Again, my rebranding myself, the media giant, former pro wrestler, six foot ten. Hey, you know what? Especially all the shows have done 9,000 plus. And we have another amazing celebrity. By First introduced by co-host Greg Hanna from Toss C3. Greg, how are you? And you're excited about our guest. Doing awesome. Yeah, I can't wait to talk to him. All right. So I... I'm very interested, and I got to remind myself back in the days of Mad TV. And he has to bring me back, like do a timeline deal. So he's a former SNL star and Mad TV star, and now he has a podcast, a deep fake podcast where he's interviewed people like Bill Borer and Alec Baldwin. I'm excited to welcome him, Jeff Richards. Jeff, how are you, man? What's going on? Hey, yo, good to be here. All right, so let's just talk about it. Let's just jump right to it. And the way I'm going to jump right to it is specifically enough to look at comedian was that you wanted to be a comedian right out of the womb were you a class clown what was it yeah i just always had that instinct to to kind of pop off or wait for a moment in the classroom and then just you know just try to throw things off a little bit yeah so i always went for the punchline and yeah and always did voices and and you know uh, imitations of people mimic uh, a bit you know since i was little yeah yeah Okay, a little. What was the what impersonations you start out with? What were your favorites? Uh, I started out with Letterman. I used to watch Letterman when I was like twelve. Uh, it, it, it's it's nice to see. It. Good to have you here. <laughs> you would hope at some point, and again, I don't know when. Uh, at some point, uh, things might change. <laughs> <laughs> and so you started that right off the bat, and that end, and that is that where you looked at kind of where your career was going from there what what happened then like you wanted to be at, do this when do you say this is going to be something i want to do i think in college i was in um uh study abroad and i was in in italy and i i didn't have much tv there wasn't much english stuff so i was just doing impressions to all the students and i get laughs and i thought well if i could try to figure out how to do stand-up maybe i could you know do stand-up so when i came back i I was in North Carolina. I came back and I did open mic at a club and I just fell in love from the first night. Yeah. All right. Good, Greg. First well, that's pretty amazing. Um, so that's a great question. Did you enjoy doing stand up in front of a live audience more? Or I guess, I mean, is Saturday Night Live, is it is it a live audience as well? And you really can't tell all the time yeah. on TV what's real and what's not. Yeah. It's live, yeah. There's a it, it is live. Okay, cool. And so, so tell me, I used to love to watch Saturday Night Live, you know, when I was younger. Don't have the time now. Plus, I, I can't stay up as late as I used to. Um, but tell, tell me some stories, like, from Saturday Night Live. Like, like what's something that you can remember? Either, like, one of the cast members or, I don't know, were you, were you around with Chris Farley at all or any of those times? Or that, My first year was Will, Fer Will, Will Ferrell's last year. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, I remember one time... Uh, just a surreal moment. There were a lot of just surreal moments 
one time I was in the um, uh, bathroom, or I wasn't in the bathroom, but there was a security, and I wasn't in the bathroom yet. There was a security guy in front of the bathroom, and Mayor Giul Giuliani was in the bathroom, going to the bathroom. And I walked in, I was dressed just like drunk girl, all makeup, dress, everything. And I just was standing in the urinal, going to the bathroom and look over. There's Rudy Giuliani. It was just, just such a weird moment, you know, very strange. What did you do? When you, did you say anything to Rudy? I think I did. I think I just gave one of these like, hey, how you doing? <laughs> but yeah, I was full. It was weird, you know, but it was it was really cool. Yeah. And then and when you you the character drunk girl go into more drunk girl and how that developed that character uh i i was doing stand-up in san diego and there was just a girl in the crowd that was yelling out i she wouldn't listen to me when i was talking to her as myself so i just started impersonating her and yelling back at her as she yelled at me and kind of shut her up that way and that's how it started um Basically, you can't stop a drunk girl. You just have to get out of the way, you know. <laughs> That's how that happened, yeah. And then did you think it would go to that point where you're playing that character? Never even thought. Not even close. Who came up with the idea? Did you come up with the idea to, with the writers? Or how did that how did that develop? From, that, from that, uh, that moment with the audience, that dialogue became the sketch for the first one. You know, just uh, being real combative and crying and all the different whirlwind of emotions uh, drunk people have. Uh, so, well. so tell me some of your mentors you had as a comedian. Who are some of the people that helped you out? Um, Harlan Williams has always been a great guy for advice and a, just a great friend. Um, different people. Let's see. Um, um well, um, from the show or just stand-ups? Just stand-ups in general? Stand-up show, any show, anytime. Writer, I went on tour with him for a couple of years, and he's a great guy. He's coming on the show this week on Wednesday. Okay. Um, and, um, yeah, those guys and Chris Kattan, you know. Um, uh, yeah, those are the main ones. Um, yeah, those are the main ones. Yeah. <laughs> So tell me, as a comedian, like your ultimate goals as a comedian, have they changed throughout the career to now? You know, because you're talking, naming some of these names, they went on to TV, not just TV, but also, you know, films and things like that. Was that an ultimate goal for yourself as well as a comedian to, to go further into acting and other films and things like that? Is that a goal by every comedian, do you think, especially when they're doing stand-up? No, I don't think so. I think... You know, some some guys want to act, some some don't. Um, I did. There's so many things I like to do. So I even like to do music, like funny music stuff. Um, but you know, it's just like a little of this, little of that. You know, it doesn't have to be everything all at once. You know, I have a lot of fun with you know different different aspects. All right, go Greg. That's interesting. You know, uh, you you mentioned Neil. You know, movies and stuff and comedy. So Adam Sandler jumped into mind for that. You know, did you ever work with Adam Sandler at all, either on SNL or bump into him out in the world or bump into him a couple of times. I met him a couple of times. Um, he's a great guy too. Um, but no, never never worked with him. No. Your experience on Mad TV and what Mad TV was about. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Oh, I don't know. I was just so fresh and young and you know, it was like 
you know, I'd started doing stand-up maybe a year and a half prior. So I didn't know what to expect. And at that time, I'd never done any, like, really any acting at all. Um, so I was kind of thrown into it. But I think I did pretty good for what it was. I, there was this one sketch where I played Letterman, again, Letterman. Um, and it was this long sketch. And there was a lot of choreography and there's a lot of stuff to it. And I got through it and I was like, okay, maybe I can do this. I think I can figure this out. And then, you know, got on SNL, you know, like eight months later or something. Nice. Then I, yeah, yeah. The, those opportunities happen. And so that opportunity happened through Mad TV and different things after doing SNL and different things. Is stand up your favorite thing just to perform? Would you say go out there and perform as a comedian? Yeah, I do love the live, the live aspect of it. Um, I just, I liked improving a lot too. That's why I like my show. Cause it's, you know, it's 30 to 40 minutes. It's all, you know, improvised and the guest doesn't really know what's going to happen. And, you know, that's, that's fun to me. Cause you just have to get it on the one take, you know? Um, and that's a lot like SNL, you know, you have to get it on the one take. So exactly. And that's how I just try to, because I went live for so many years of radio, I make my podcast the same way. I'm like, whatever, we're not live, but we're going to play it. So give us an example, deep fake, define deep fakes. I had no idea what that meant. And if we were guests on your show and deep fake, how would it work? Well, um, if you're doing an impression with me and it was a double deep fake, we both have the deep fake on our face, which is basically, you know, it's an overlay computer overlay of, um, you know, all these different uh, composite images of uh, the person you're going to impersonate um, or, or just put a face over. And it's just like this thing. It's like a mask. Like you can't turn your face too much this way or that way or it'll blur out. Um, and it's just it just looks really good. If you have a really good uh, camera to film it on, it, it looks very I mean, I mean, a lot of people get fooled by it. You know, they mm. think it's. So I'm um, so uh, so you're saying so give me an example of the character. So if I said I would be someone, OK, and you could rip on my Kermit the Frog impersonation um, and, and uh, how I impersonate <laughs> Kermit the Frog. If I was Kermit the Frog and you were somebody so and so we they, they would look like the character as it's a deep fake in the podcast. Am I correct? Am I on the right track? We do, do it after you recorded it. OK. Oh, yeah. OK. Put it on. Now. So that's what. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. No, I just saying what I'm doing now too. I, I'm doing like an unfaked. I'm doing it just with no deep fake here and there too. Just so people remember, you know, it's me and or someone at least. Because sometimes you just forget if you see that face and it looks just like it and it sounds like it, and you just it, you just forget. So I think it's good to mix it up. That's what we're doing. Okay, so you do your Letterman. I'll be Kermit the Frog. Okay, let's just uh, go ahead. Hi, ho, Kermit the Frog here. Thanks for being on this deep fake thing. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, it's nice to be here. And let me just say right now, you look like a million bucks. Well, I'm, I'm feeling a bit green after COVID, but I'm doing okay, by the way. And, and also, Miss Piggy's recovering very well. Right. Right. Well, you know, she's a pig, so don't don't have any grand expectations. Uh, uh, she might, she might go back and forth. It's difficult to say. <laughs> That's great. All right, Greg, ask a question now. I mean, I, I never thought I'd be doing this, but see, I ended up doing this before. I, I like improv. I never did improv. Uh, 
Jeff, can I, can I do that? Like, let's say we came up with the two things, you know, like whose line is it anyway? And all the, the how they would create certain things and then an improv. Do you enjoy improv? And I'm going to let Greg ask a question. I love improv. Yeah, it's, it's the best. It's because of professional wrestling, I would could do an improvisation and saying, we we're going to wrestle each other. And I did this, I forget, with someone from Whose Line Is It Anyway? And I forget who I interviewed. Isn't that terrible? I interviewed so many people. I need to have a list. And my producer says, hey, this is who you interviewed. I love it because it's easy. Remembering lines is hard. I tried auditioning a couple of times. I didn't like memorizing lines. I like to create my own characters, do my own thing. Maybe I should maybe someday get and do a comedy or something. But improv's fun because let's just say we were coming up with an idea that you were going to wrestle me and we could do that after Greg asks a question. This is me being, I guess, improving in, in the show. I just care less. I'll talk about whatever. That's how I enjoy things. When you're in a scripted thing, I can't stand scripted. So that's why I like improv. So is, is that one of your fun things where you do different improvs or you had to do that in, in, in acting sometimes or go and do certain things? Have you done a lot of improv types of... Oh, yeah. I've done a lot of improv and and I just like it because it's you're so free and you, know, you don't have any responsibilities uh, except listening and reacting and being in the moment and uh, yeah I really like that but I also like acting because you have to make it seem in the moment it has to be you know you have to really do it a certain way so it feels spontaneous and I like that challenge. How do you remember lines? I think I find it difficult just to, if, especially if I didn't get a chance to memorize those lines completely. If it's such a long thing, like a script scripted thing, that's hard. I never thought of that till I saw what you guys go through. If it's like, let's say 10, 20 paragraphs, you got to memorize. That's tough. That's yes. tough, tough, especially if you don't feel it and you're trying to read it. Is it a photographic memory? Is it something actors have its ability I to do that? I think you hit it on the head. I think the best actors uh, just have that photographic memory. They, they memorize the best. The best actors can just, if they have it, if you have it on tap, it's ready to go. You know, th those are the best actors. When you're, when you're struggling to think of what's next, then it takes you right out of the moment. So Interesting. That's a good idea to look at it, memorizing it like you're memorizing a test like I did in college. I can memorize... 150 pages so maybe maybe acting could still be there for me who knows all right go, wow. ahead. Uh, go ahead greg with a question well, you that's something new we got to explore that a little bit later yeah. neil yeah <laughs> so dr phil um dr phil <laughs> yeah <laughs> if you want to change your life you gotta make changes in your life <laughs> <laughs> awesome <laughs> I got up next. All right. I'm, I'm going to have to do Elmo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Elmo, and I'm excited to be on your show, Dr. Phil. Tell me a little bit more about what I'm, why I'm on here. I've made a lot of mistakes, Dr. Phil. Do you lock yourself? Do, do you understand who you are? Because I'm looking at you, and I'm just thinking, Hey, this guy don't know nothing. You know, he just he don't he's moving his neck around, but he's not listening to his internal problems. You got a problem. What is my problem? That I always want to go and sing. I can't define it, you know. But look how you're just look how your eyebrows are up. That's not good. You got to get your eyebrows down because 
Oh. <laughs> that's great because you're impersonating, going after me. So that's great improv. This is the fun thing. And, you know, and people just talk a little bit more about the deep fake podcast in that way <laughs> that your podcast, the guests, you're telling them a character. Do you like some of the podcasts you've done with some of the, the huge celebrities you've had? What characters have you guys done? So people need to go check that out. Like, what character were you and? Well, I do Jimmy Fallon, you know. I said, coolest thing in the world. Hey, dude, man. Hey, dude, man. I said, coolest thing in the world. So good to be here, you know. It's incredible. I found a paperclip the other day, you know. You know what a paperclip is, you know? A twisted piece of metal, you know. I first saw it, I was like, oh, my God, no way. You know? <laughs> and who was the guest? This guest was playing what, who they play. I had Kevin Farley do it, Russell Peters do it uh charles fleischer do it i've done fallon a few times yeah no but i mean your guests the celebrity guests what who's who do they in person who they say that act like oh they don't that doesn't always happen that's very rare usually i have them on as themselves and you interview as that person that's yeah. so cool yeah uh, james austin johnson from snl does trump he, he did uh billy bob thornton and i did uh gene wilder willy wonka <laughs> I have to off air talk about some of my other personalities, my dual personalities, but I can't do it here. Why? <laughs> I can't do my personality. Give me one. Give me one. Oh man, you're killing me. Oh no. I'll do Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman, and you pick somebody. Oh, oh, oh! You were talking that way. I was the, okay. Okay, let's just go. Um, uh, I was going to think about doing one that's a, a fake character. Blah blah. Yeah. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing fantastic. You know, and you know, being here, living in Texas, and no longer in Tri-Delphia, West Virginia, I I tell you what, I really enjoy how much more interesting people in Texas are. This is this is Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> wow, Dustin Hoffman! I, I I think I might have watched you at one point in time. I'm just too busy, you know, doing my thing. Well, I don't know what your thing is, but it's it's intruding on my space. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to do. But you got the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, this is fantastic. <laughs> this is not what I expected. I'm sure Greg didn't expect this. But this is the fun thing, and you're just really good at impersonating people what do you do and i've talked to some major people that have done it like the voice of bart simpson i've had on my show i had the voice of winnie the pooh i've had different people and they talk about how they create these characters or are able to do this what do you is it just practice continue practice listen to yourself you know some of these other voiceover artists what do you do to kind of do it to make it fun what do you what are your thoughts i mean it's sort of a knack it's a bit of a knack but, you know, I think you just hear somebody's rhythm and and it speaks to you and you have an opinion of of how to play it. Because it's almost like it's almost like, you know, not just mimicking, but um, mocking in a way, because you're you're kind of putting an edge on it. So I, I don't know. I think it mostly comes from not really trying, just listening, let it get in your brain. And maybe it's one you can do. That's how I do it, you know. All right. I'm busy doing this with my 
my kids sometimes and also my former students. I did the Kermit the Frog voice. I'll have to do this one. Boy, people are going to want to get back in this one. And this one is the best. The Rubber Ducky song. Are you ready? And then you can ask a question. You give feedback. We'll just let's take this American Idol. And I'm going to sing the Rubber Ducky song and you can be one of the judges. And you can pick any of your characters. Okay. All right, let's go. Rubber ducky, you're the one. You make bath time so much fun. Oh, poor little ducky. Most ducks don't have long, and neither do I. This tiny speck of dirt is not just a speck of dirt. Inside are mustard spiders. Okay, that one got a little weird, didn't it? Yeah, well, who's that? That's David Attenborough. I uh, see. I wouldn't know. That's fantastic. I love it. This is this is call improv. Okay, Greg, ask a question. That the final question, and then I might have one more question. No, you can go ahead and take it. I'm enjoying this too much. <laughs> <laughs> it's be, this is okay. So, Jeff, your latest projects is it podcasting, or also can we find you other places, other things as well? Yeah, I'm going to have a show at Oregon's Best Winery in um, uh, it's September 17th, this Saturday at 7 o'clock, oregonsbestwine.net. They have great wine, delicious wines, a little small winery. Where's that located in? Oregon's Best Aurora, Oregon. Aurora, Oregon. Okay, so my listeners are in Aurora, Oregon. Definitely check it out. So you basically on your website, is everything there to basically? Yeah. Linktree.com slash Jeff Richards. Or Instagram is the Jeff Richards. Jeff, did you ever think this was going to happen? Did you find out a podcast radio host wants to do impersonations? Now, give me your take on some of them. Are they pretty good? Are they okay? Would you rank them? What would you rank them? I think they're good. Um, I think maybe just go even farther with exaggerating it. I'm not prepared today. It's, it's no, a, no. Is just, that, a just a note. I appreciate that. From an expert like you, so what do you think when people recognize you most? What do they think they see you most from, Jeff? Probably most. the SNL. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, I did a few different things, and I got a movie coming out, Mistletoe Massacre, will be out in Christmas, too. So, All right, you're uh, going to come back on, right? You're going to come back on, and we're going to have another fun thing when Mistletoe Massacre comes out, right? Yeah, absolutely. I Thank you. It. it was a lot of fun. All right, gregstossc3.com. <laughs> neilhaley.com the media giant and you know what i'm going to challenge jeff richards to a pro wrestling match on the next broadcast and we're going to have our little promos of who's going to win in the match i'm legitimate 6'10, 280 pounds i'll make my comeback in the ring against jeff richards are you ready jeff yeah but i, I i'm gonna be oiled oh no 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 this is not that kind of wrestling you're not being uh okay oh, that's that's my win. Kaufman, you're not Andy Kaufman now. Come on now. Oh, come on. Well, I was watching uh, the Jerry Lawler uh, documentary about Andy Kaufman. If you've not seen that documentary or you've not seen Man on the Moon, uh, I love that. Okay. Well, we appreciate it, Jeff. And so, and all uh, your websites, all your different things. So, you're doing a lot of comedy. The podcast seems so fun. I'm going to definitely check it out. And man, you get these celebrities. We're definitely going to have to chat again. I appreciate it. Very cool. Thank you, Neil. All right. You're listening and <laughs> watching The Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment.
Hi, everyone, and welcome to Climate Change, the real story podcast with our host, Dr. Marks. Dr. Marks, how are you? What's going on? I'm I'm good. I spent a little time diving for lobsters down in the Florida Keys last week, so I'm all refreshed and ready to go. All right. So what, what, what are we going to talk? I mean, isn't it great? It's just fantastic to have that family time. So what is our topic for today? Um, the first topic is going to be Bigfoot, the reality or the non-reality. Um, there would be a little lighthearted. And then I'll, we'll have a second one, a little bit more tense, called reparations. Uh, is it a can of worms or not? Okay, I'm ready. Okay, ready to go. Okay, let me start out with Bigfoot. Uh, everybody who's listening should think in their mind, do they feel that Bigfoot is a real entity creature or just some type of a hoax? Because since the Loch Ness Monster uh, was exposed as a hoax in 1993, and many people don't know that, uh, Bigfoot has become the leading legendary character that captures our imaginations. So what happened with uh, the Loch Ness Monster that I believed in was looking forward to finally uh, seeing one uh, when I was a kid growing up? Well, the Loch Ness Monster called Nessie was exposed as a prank in 1993 by the uh, family of the person who initially started the prank. But Dr. Robert Wilson is his name. Uh, he took advantage of a local uh, kind of a, a cutesy little le uh, legend, and uh, they found the toy submarine that he glued a pleosaur dinosaur toy on, put it out into a little shallow area, and he shook the camera as he took a picture of it. So they actually produced the toy submarine with the pleosaurs um, uh, glued onto it, and the whole thing became a, a big hoax. But actually, before that, it was sort of proven by scientific methods. They basically sonared the entire Loch Ness and found there was no real creature there, nor was there enough food to manage or feed even one, much less a whole breeding population of pleosaurs that were at least 30 feet long. So common sense would have said that that was a hoax. Uh, it wasn't proven until then. Now, let's go back to the Bigfoot legend. The Bigfoot legend began in 1958, where loggers in Northern California saw the imprint of a foot. They measured it, it was 16 inches. Now let's just stop for a minute. 16 inches is not that big of a footprint. Uh, Willis Reed, the famous basketball player of yesteryear in the 70s and 80s, had 19 inch feet. So do many of the big NBA stars today who are six foot eight and six foot 10 and things like that. So uh, that's not particularly a big one. But uh, the loggers made um, kind of a, a joke claim that, well, now we can compete with the abominable snowman uh, in the Himalayas. So that kind of started this, particularly with the Humboldt Times newspaper out of San Francisco, published it. And then as many things go on, once the media gets a hold of it, it just snowballed. Now, Bigfoot also took advantage of local existing legends, particularly among the Native American tribes in that area. In fact, the uh, Statel Nation uh, called them the Sasquanets, and that's morphed now into Sasquatch. So that's where the Sasquatch came from. It came from an Indian legend. Now, other Indians, and, and I have been up to the Northwest Territories in Canada, and I've talked to many of the Native um, people up there. They believe in ghosts. They believe in Bushmen. Some of them call them Whitico. Others call them Rougarous. They all identify some weird creature haunting their forests and about seven and a half to eight foot tall. 
red-brown hair. And that's been the image of Bigfoot since it started. Now, since then, and most recently, the Bigfoot craze has become the component of movies, TVs, documentaries, inventories, uh, T-shirts, toys, stuffed animals. And on one hand, Bigfoot has been portrayed as a lovable, uh, misunderstood, big oaf of a creature. On the other hand, it's been portrayed as a malevolent uh, creature that stalks at night and rips up trees and tortures humans. Uh, the TV programs are common now. Um, the long-running TV programs are really most self-serving. Uh, they often start out with a group of rural individuals where the uh, MC says, how many here have seen a Bigfoot? And of 30 people in the audience, 25 raised their hand. They've seen a Bigfoot. Has anybody taken a picture of one? No. Um, Bigfoot and Sasquatch seem to be running across roads and um, they identify them as vocalizations. Uh, so there's not a lot of real documents from the uh, existing public. Uh, many of these TV programs use infrared imaging proclaiming to us viewers what looks like a bear or a mountain lion or even one of their compatriots is really um, a Sasquatch. So th they make a leap of faith every sound they hear. And one of the more embarrassing ones is when um, a sound was heard at night during one of the programs, um, the, the aggressive uh, Sasquatch hunter said, that's a Squatch, I know it, I know it, no, nothing else sounds like that. Well, actually, it was revealed a couple of days later that that was a pet howler monkey from a nearby ranch. So that kind of got exposed. So uh, in any event, several shows beginning with this rural audience have never really answered a lot. Now, what's kind of interesting is that Bigfoot sightings have been seen in nearly every state in the United States, whereas it started in Northern California, certainly Oregon, Alaska, uh, Canadian West has uh, had several sightings. And there's been even some uh, in Delaware, in um, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois. Uh, so this has kind of grown almost out of proportion. So let me ask a few questions. If you are a believer in Sasquatch, Bigfoot, let's look at a couple questions that have to be answered. With thousands of these sightings, why is there still no definitive validated photograph of a Bigfoot? Even that now we have people carrying um, cell phones with cameras with high pixelations, there still isn't any good photograph of them. Yes, they may be uh, shy and recluse, but um, there's plenty of pictures of babies. There's plenty of pictures of moose. There's plenty of pictures of even aardvarks. So um, I'm not too sure their elusiveness explains that. Question number two, how come every purported picture of Bigfoot shows a calm creature casually walking away from human hunters or human hikers? There's no menacing gestures or charges. The creature just calmly walks away, not being afraid of anything. Well. If you're out in the woods, if you're a hunter or even a non-hunter, when you come across wild animals who have no acclimatization to humans, they run. They try to separate. Nothing on two feet is more scary to an animal than humans. So it's a little bit suspicious that every sighting is a calm walk. Number, question number three, how come there have been no sightings of juvenile big birds? Every Bigfoot is seven to eight feet. 
Uh, I'm sure when they're growing up, they may be three or four feet tall, like our own uh, children and grandchildren are. Uh, so we don't see that. Also, how come most of them all are male? I don't recall other than one sighting that was a female Bigfoot. And that too was one of dubious um, uh, authenticity. Uh, so in every mammalian species, male and females are almost co-equal. Females are easy to spot. They have a different appearance. They have breasts. They have size difference. They're usually smaller. Uh, they have you know, teeth, other things you could identify. How come they're all big, robust male uh, Bigfoots? Question number five. How come no forage or feeding sites of Bigfoot individuals or a clan of them has been found? Uh, a Bigfoot is a pretty big thing. It's going to eat quite a bit, whether he is a herbivore or a carnivore. He has to live in a clan. These are not animals that live isolated like a leopard. They're more like lions that live in clans. You know, human beings and, and humanoids have all, ever since Neanderthals and before, have clanned together. So you would expect a site with um, uh, broken trees, uh, punched up bark, pine cones that are crunched up. Uh, you would probably find uh, Bigfoot feces around. Nobody's recorded any of that. Now, if you take a look at the uh, silverback gorilla, silverback gorillas are five and a half feet tall. They're not very big uh, as far as height goes. And they weigh 400 to about 450 pounds. They eat 50 pounds of vegetation a day. If a Bigfoot at seven five to maybe eight foot, he would weigh at least 500 pounds and require 70 to 100 pounds of food daily, particularly in the colder climates as opposed to silverback gorillas that live in warmer climates, they would need more calories. You would find forage sites for them. How come none have been found? Now, if Bigfoot is not a vegetarian that eats pine cones, bark, tree branches, forest mushrooms, which I find it pretty hard to believe that he would have enough volume to do that. Um, but if he's a carnivore, why haven't we found carcasses of his prey? We find carcasses of, of preys of wolves, of bears, of, of any other carnivore mountain lion, why don't we find one that you could attribute to a, a Bigfoot? Uh, and with that, you would have saliva, you would have uh, DNA evidence of hair and other things. So looking at some of these questions that are hard, they're hard to answer. Okay, to be cited, question number six, to be cited as often as they have been, even dismissing most sightings as mistaken or mammals uh, of another species, maybe even extinct. There has been a repopulating group in, in an area of at least 30 or more. If you're seeing Bigfoot, they're not individuals who just appear out of nothing. They were born from parents. They have other siblings. Why have there been only single sightings? There's never been really a sighting of four, five, six, seven uh, of them or trampled down areas, feces, broken branches. Every focus has been on the picture of an individual. As distant as it is, and as out of focus as it is, makes one wonder. Question number seven. If as reported, Bigfoot is a humanoid, then why has no one brought back a Bigfoot tool? If they're humanoid, they would have developed tools. Even our primitive caveman ancestors uh, broke rocks to create sharp edges for, for what's called stone axes that cleaned up animal scar or removed uh, certain tree branches and the like. Uh, none of that has been found, strangely enough. 
Now, I've looked on the internet just now, <clears throat> and the Bigfoot sightings include, as I've said before, uh, Ohio, Illinois, Wisconsin, Idaho, North Carolina, even Australia. In Australia, they're called Yowies. So it seems like it's an international <laughs> phenomenon. Uh, there probably even is a, a one in Delaware that might be our president hiding in the basement. Uh, so do Bigfoots travel? Well, if they're going from state to state, one would expect one or more of them would have been hit by a car or hit by a truck on their way. So if they travel, consider all of the roadkill that is picked up by our different state governments, whether they're bears, deers, moose, they all do that. If there's a number of Bigfoot, you would expect at least once would get hit by a car. Question number one. Why is every photograph of reported Bigfoot unable to show a clear picture except one? Now, that one I wanted to spend some time with. Uh, you will probably see this one. It's the most reproduced and heralded photo of a purported real Bigfoot. It's a short video taken by Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin in 1967. It was in Northern California where the greatest Bigfoot sightings seemed to occur. It depicts a picture of a large creature with dark black hair, calmly walking away from a videographer. The creature is forward and to the left of the videographer, and he's looking back at the videographer as he's calmly walking. But since there's no reference point, we don't know how big it is, but I would dare say I would agree it's a big individual creature. Uh, this video analyzed by experts time and again, about 50% say that it's real. They look at the, at the folds of skin and say, yeah, that's consistent with the folds of skin as a person is walking. Others say, no, the folds are consistent with fabric, and that's a man in a gorilla suit. Well, let me add one more thing uh, to it that you should consider. Is this video real or is it a hoax? Is it similar to what the Loch Ness Monster issue went through where that was a claim to be correct from 1967 on all the way to recent times. So first question, why is Robert Patterson and Bob Gillen, who are not hunting, why were they out in the woods with a video camera before cell phones were even invented? What were they doing deep in the North California woods, not hunting, but had a video camera? One has to be a little suspicious of motive there. Um, number two, if you take a look at this carefully, and, and I have many times, the swinging of the arms is the classic walking gait. We know the humans. The, it's a little bit exaggerated with the arms swinging. Most animals are unlikely to walk exactly like humans, but we could say they're humanoid. All right, we'll buy that. But more importantly, through most of the video, the creature is looking back at the videographer. Now, every animal in nature, when they have a videographer or a hunter or anybody, they look back at them when they're stopped. But once they realize that that is a foreign person, they put their head straight ahead and they run or they walk. This person is walking at a same pace, always looking back at the videographer. That is a human trait. So I think we could all recognize it. How many times have we seen our sons and our grandsons playing Little League baseball? They hit the ball and they look at, at, at their parents or their grandparents for approval as they're running the bases or if they're catching a football. That is what I'm saying is human nature. 
So um, this whole thing underscores our current problem uh, with currently high-tech cell phones, photoshops, vocal reproductions, anatomically correct or even modified gorilla suits or even Bigfoot suits, prank stunts are, and attempts to gain five minutes of fame are easy to do today. You know, you, it's easy to fake all of this. So finally, why do so many well-educated and even good scientists ardently believe Bigfoots are out there? This is my connection to climate change, the real story of the book that I wrote. The reason is we want to believe. We wanted to believe in the Loch Ness Monster. We want to believe in UFOs currently, and that judgment is still out there. We want to believe in Bigfoot because it's romantic. It's, it's mysterious. Humans have that curiosity to explore the unknown for the, cura, the, the, the unknown. So this fits in the right into our human frailties that we want to believe. But I would leave you with the thought. Belief is one thing. Belief belongs in church, in a synagogue, in a mosque, in a temple. It doesn't belong in science. All the science points to Bigfoot is a nice romantic fantasy of us. Well, hopefully some of these questions uh, you'll try to answer yourself. Thank you. That was, that was impressive, Dr. Marks. Okay, that was getting you picked up climate change, real story, and all finer bookstores. And that was climate change, the real story, guys. Take care. Um, okay, give me a, a minute or two to. Uh... We're back to Neil Haley's show, and I'm excited first to welcome my co-host Paul Hollis, author of the Hollow Man series, CEO of Seniors Publishing and Hollow Man Publishing. How are you, Paul? Well, who's our guest today? I'm doing great, and we have a, a special guest today, um, Patrick Goheren. He is not only an author, but he's a uh, freelance editor, which which is also helpful to all. Uh, authors and he is a, a literary consultant so welcome uh, patrick hey thank you for having me so tell me how the whole started with writing books like uh, how that start with you yeah so i started writing books uh felt inspired actually my wife and i had a series of miscarriages and so in that suffering you know i was trying to look for resources and uh, that's when uh, the lord put on my heart to write uh the my first book nursery of heaven and then i have a another book behind me coming out this fall called The Grief of Dads. And I haven't seen a book, you know, in terms of in the Catholic Christian market for a book just specifically for fathers who have lost a child at all stages, you know, from miscarriage to suicide. So this book has all stories in there. Wow. And so kind of the first book made you want to write the second, it sound like, sounds like? Yeah, yeah, I did. And, you know, it's funny, I, I felt like I always had this gift, you know, not, I mean, writing, but I, I didn't know how to do, you know, how to write well, you know, I didn't have the greatest teachers and I would say English teachers. And then even I always joke, like my parents would help me write my books in high school. I just like hated it. And all of a sudden I felt like you know, I was praying and like, you know, God, like I had this talent and I just didn't know how to cultivate it. And so uh, I think this uh, writing has been kind of an outlet for me. And it's not just, you know, I don't just write for the sake of, you know, uh, my glory or anything, but to give God glory and also to, above all, to help people. Yeah, Paul, what question? Um, wow, you, um, uh, you're you a very interesting character. The, the, um, I, yeah, I was just thinking of when you said you hated this and hated writing in, in high school, I remember actually paying paying a, a girl to write a poem for me in high school <laughs> so, and, and, and a short story. So yeah, I, I understand that. <laughs> So, it's so, so, yeah, so, yeah. 
so tell us about your um, your editing and and uh, uh, you know some of your literary. How do you consult within the in that industry? Yeah, so I mean, in terms of editing, you know, I used to be um, the acquisitions editor at Tan Books, which is you know it's a Catholic publisher. I mean, they have some amazing books. You know, have the bestseller like The Devil and Karl Marx, and that was uh, the former editor did that one. And then I ended up editing the book The The Devil and Bella Dodd. Uh, just some really amazing books, uh, a lot of you know, mostly spiritual books, but you know, you get the the political ones. And um, so I've kind of been enjoying that and doing some freelance work. And then in terms of literary agent, that's just something, it's more of a consultant that I call it, but I just, you know, I've been able to publish at so many different, uh, especially Catholic publishers. I've tried to crack to get into doing um, a secular publisher, but it's very difficult. You know, it's like who, you know, but I feel like in the Catholic world, I, I, I've been blessed to publish at all different, you know, pretty much every publisher there is. And I know all the editors. And so one of the things I like to do is, you know, if, if someone, you know, I come up like when I was, when I was an editor at TAN, I'd come up with all, a lot of the book ideas. And so now it's like, if I meet someone that I think has an idea or they're talented, I, I go to them and say, Hey, would you like to write this book? And, you know, I'll, I'll pitch it for you on your behalf. And I've, I've only been doing a little bit of that, but uh, very just fascinating because I, I see so many roadblocks, as you know, you guys self-publish and so many people want to get into a, a publisher, but they just don't know how. And so like, you know, if I can offer that service, you know, I'm, you know, it's kind of commission based, right? You don't get paid until they get the contract. So. so what do you see with specifically authors, why they're not getting published? What are publishers looking for, especially not uh, Catholic publishers, but in Christian publishers, more secular? Yeah, I see in the secular world, unfortunately, publishing has become a, it's what kind of platform do you have? So it's like, if you, you know, if you're known, I mean, they're going after celebrities left and right, because, you know, they want to make a profit, but the content, there's people that have, you know, you look at some of the best books and I think it was, there's a lady, I mean, the Jesus's way was like the top Christian book, right? That lady was rejected by a handful of publishers, even chicken soup for the soul, number one selling books were all self-published. So I do think, um, you know, they're getting rejected because they're not known. They don't have a platform. And, uh, so the, unfortunately, it's like we need agents. We need someone that can go in there and fight for that book. What are you seeing when you're fighting for that book, especially secular? What what are they saying? Number of followers, their social media platform. What can you do for me? Have you self-published this book first, right? And got yeah. sales, those things, right? Yeah, no, I mean, I've I've only, I've tried even myself, like, right, you know, I wrote a children's book. I was trying to get into like, um, Harper and Collins, Thomas A. Nelson. And I, I reach out to all these people on LinkedIn, just, hey, would you take a shot? And and like I get very few responses from them. It's almost like the select club and you can't get in there. And I did pitch one, one book to a secular one and it was like shot down. And so it's really, you know, I'm kind of at a loss of how to get in there. I just, I don't, I, I really, you know, I, unless you like work there, I feel like then you got to weigh in. But, uh, but I, I do think that that helped me. Like, and I, I see Paul self-published, like I, I self-published a couple of my books and then a couple of publishers picked it up. So that is an option, you know, go and self-publish and go send it to like one of these publishers and say, Hey, would you be interested in, in taking this over? And you were able to do that with some of your books first self-publish and then go to the publisher. I did, you know, I mean, self-publishing, you know, like, I mean, there's, I mean, it costs, it can cost, you know, if you want to do it well, I mean, I did it. It was 3000 easily, but I'm sure, you know, there's other people you can use that, that can uh, reduce that cost, but um, definitely um, it's an expense. Uh, but I mean, 
And, but you, self-publishing, if you have that platform, I mean, I've seen it in the Catholic marketplace. Some of these people, there's a guy that wrote this book called Infiltration, Dr. Taylor Marshall. He sold many copies, but his second book, he decided, you know what, I'm going to self-publish it. So people with big time names, they realize you know, some of the publishers, I mean, they're, they're taking a lot of the money and like, hey, I mean, they can sell more copies, make more money. But if, you know, if you have that platform, you can do that. But if you don't, I mean, I recommend trying to go to a, a publisher. Okay, Paul. Next question. Uh, well, um, as, as far as um, as far as the, um, the the publishing goes, though, is that that is really a serious problem that we have nowadays. I mean, the market has really changed in the last twenty years as far as what publishers will do for you and and how much how much money that they that the, the percentage of royalty that they take and, and what's left over for the author, et cetera. Even the big time guys are, are running into things like that where they don't really, for example, they don't really do marketing for you anymore. Right. Even if, even if you are published. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a hard thing. And, and, and I was just wondering if you have run into that as well as, as that, what, what, when, it, when, a, when your publishers, what do they do for you? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I see it now. It's like, I mean, that's why they they want these people to have a big Instagram following because it's like, I think every publisher I, I've seen in, in the Catholic publishing world, it's like if a book is not going to sell 3,000 copies in its first year, they're not going to do that book with you because they're going to lose money on it. And so they want you to come. I mean, I'd say a lot of them, they want you to have some kind of following. They'll also ask you to like, to purchase, you know, if you're with an organization, they want to know how many you're going to purchase ahead of time. And uh, so there's definitely like an investment on your part. And I, I posted on LinkedIn many months ago. I mean, it's true because, you know, when I was an editor and I would look at our authors and I would say, you have to be the best salesman for your book because a publisher is going to like, after a couple months, your book is gone. They're on to the next book. And you spent all these hours, you know, my wife would joke with me. She's like, why don't you go get a job at, at Lowe's or something? Cause you'd make more money than all the hours you spend writing a book. You know, it doesn't, Unless you get a home run book, I mean, those royalties will come eventually in your children and grandchildren. It's a blessing, but it's it's not a whole lot unless it's a home run book. And and so there's a lot invested into. It. I think people think that you're going to write a book, you're going to become rich and you're going to become famous, and it doesn't really happen, you know. And you see the people that have these books, you know, the majority of people we see it, that are out there, like the celebrities, they have ghost writers. They're not even writing their books, and uh, so it's just really. Uh, and there's got to be a way that you know that that for us self-published authors and to, to, to fix this model where it's like, you know, you're only getting like 10% royalties. It's kind of, I mean, it's, it's kind of unjust, I would say. All right. So the best place people can find information on you and purchase your books, Patrick, where can they go? Yeah, they can go to um, contemplativeheartpress.com. That was the self-publishing company I started. And then in the future, I'm going to have a Patrick R, which is my middle initial, and then ohern.com. So I'm working on getting that website up in the next week or so. All right, Patrick, we appreciate it. Thanks for stopping yeah. by. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you. Pat. Right. Thanks, Patrick. Yeah. You're listening and watching the Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hello, everyone. My name is Courtney, and I am a guest host on the Woman CEO in Reflection podcast. And I'm here with my co-hosts, Neil Haley and Nikki Freeas. How you doing, girl? As you can see, she's full of personality, y'all. How you doing? I'm doing great. So Nikki <laughs> Frias is the author of Does This Divorce Make Me Look Fat? And the creator of GirlTellMe.com. She's contributed to publications like Pop Sugar, 
Forbes boardroom and the Daily Beast on her mission to writer domination, taking over the world. That's not in there. I added it. <laughs> she's currently teaches at Washington Improv Theater. And her second book, Damn, You Still Single, will re be released in October of 2023. Hey, Nikki, girl. How you doing? Hi. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing amazing. I'm so glad that you could join me today. So I met Nikki through a program called Hey Young Writers, where both of us were, um, we got to do workshops for free for other writers. And I actually joined Nikki's workshop and it was her personality, such a great storyteller. And so my question to you is, have you always had this gift of storytelling and writing? And like, how did you come to the decision that you wanted to be an author or writer? Well, um, first of all, thank you so much for having me. This is so fun. I'm really excited as I drive, but I'm being very safe. So at least I'm wearing my seatbelt. Um, so um, I will tell you in regards to storytelling, I've always been a storyteller. I always blame it on my childhood trauma, but that's another story, right? Um, but in regards to, you know, just being the funny person, um, I've always been super attracted to performing in some type of way. Um, and I honestly hated writing. I've been writing maybe now for about four and a half, five years more seriously. But before then I did plays, I did stand up, I did improv, I performing, but I started to notice that some things were becoming more draining and other things were not. So it was kind of like the Goldilocks of figuring out what I wanted to do. So I would do stand up, and I was like, mm, it's a little too draining. I don't really like the environment. Okay, that one's, you know, not right. And then I would do plays. And then I'd be like, well, this takes a lot of time. So I don't want to do that either. Um, and I ended up on writing because I was like, I can make people laugh and I don't have to be there. I can, you can mind your business, get the humor when you want to, you can put it down, you can go away. And I can still like have my own like energy and I can kind of savor that. So writing is very new to me, but it just came after years and years of trying to find the type of comedy where I feel comfortable being able to like produce, but also not have the expectation of being there. Yeah, I love that. You know, as I was saying, Nikki, so basically you figured it out and you were able to put that spin on things, right? You took specifically enough what you didn't like doing, but you want to make people laugh in writing. How challenging was it to build the audience you built? Because everyone talks about how we build an audience, right? I build it on my radio show to uh, numbers even bigger than what we talked about before, the 5 million a week where I'm on National City Radio. I have a podcast, I'm number 11 celebrity podcast in the world according to Feedspot, all these things. But I put so much time and effort. Did you have to do the same thing in writing to get yourself known out there as a writer? Um, so when it came to writing for publications like Forbes, like the bigger guys, I always am just of the mindset of like, I don't know, but I'm going to try it. I just try to do things that are, that make me scared. Right. Um, I still am, you know, I still struggle with the confidence that comes with writing in certain aspects of it in regards to building the platform. Um, I do it every day. You know what I mean? Like the book was not easy. It was not something that was just kind of like, all right, well, like, let's just see what happens here. But I think a big reason why um, 
I'm starting to get more people that are enjoying the book and things like that is because I just don't care. Right. Um, I think at a certain point you have to determine what success is to you. And my success was just getting out the book. I think mm -hmm. if I had an expectation of published author to be like, I'm going to put a book out. And I think we do this as people, right? We're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to put something out and it's going to explode. And then the only people that read it or listen are your mom and your close friends, right? So for me to kind of build more of a following and things like that was definitely just putting myself out there in regards to being like, you know, I'm, I'm on the grind. I'm at Barnes and Noble like every day, like, hey, listen, buy my book. If you don't want it, keep it moving. You know what I mean? And just kind of not, putting the pressure on people to necessarily be like, you need to read this. This will be the best thing for you. I'm like, listen, I don't care if you like it or not. Just give it to somebody that potentially does. So <laughs> I think that kind of building that, you know, some type of following, which like, like I said, I even think till this day, like I'm always going to grind and I'm always going to try to expand to writer domination. It just comes from the lack of pressure that I put on people to, receive or not receive my gift of what I'm passionate about. And I mm. think the biggest thing that comes from that is that people are like, okay, you know, what I mean? like, I'm not going to put the pressure on myself. If you don't like it, if there's only 10 people that read my book, fine. My goal at the end of the day was to write a book, right? Mm. Um, finding six, you know what I mean? Because we all try to determine it based off of, oh, well, I'm going to be a New York Times bestseller and don't get it twisted. That's on the list. But you're also one speck of sand on the beach and you have to kind of be realistic. Like we got dreams, we got goals and, but also put realistic timelines to them and kind of yeah. see like, what does it mean initially to just put out a book? Yeah. Totally. You get so. Yeah. I was, you gave us so much to like kind of dive into and twist and turn from. And I feel like, so just this last thing that you were saying, it was making me think about detachment. And so it sounds like you got to a space of like, my goal is to write a book and that's what I want to do. And if my, if I write the book without worrying about the outcome, then I have succeeded. And so what has that been like being able to practice detachment and also balancing confidence with learning how to write? Or not learning how to write, but getting comfortable with your writing because you're an amazing writer. I feel like, you know, you mentioned earlier about um, trauma and comedy, but your storytelling and the way that you write, y'all, y'all have to get her book. I can't wait for the second book 